0: The best-selling Compliance Handbook by Compliance Evangelist and Compliance Podcast Network founder Tom Fox has been updated, revised, and improved in its new second edition. This new podcast series will build upon the best nuts and bolts compliance handbook around to provide you the best information on implementing and enhancing a best practices compliance program. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to this episode of the Compliance Handbook. Today, you're in for a real treat because I have Amy Bernard on. Amy, Amy is now an executive coach, strategic consultant, and keynote speaker who specializes in accelerating the success of compliance professionals and legal executives. Amy is well-known in the compliance industry, having been uh, chief compliance officer, and more equally importantly, a chief human relations Ship officer at companies such as McKesson and Alliance. She has been described by Forbes as one of the top coaches for legal and compliance executives. She earned her law degree from Georgetown University Law Center and a BA in English from Tufts and is an active member of the California State Bar. She's a fellow at the Harvard Institute of Coaching and a guest lecturer at UC Berkeley. Amy has significant experience in the C-suite. And as I indicated, She's been a former head of HR, so I asked her if she would join me to talk about the chapter in the Compliance Handbook on the Role of HR in Compliance. It's an interview and podcast I know you will enjoy and get quite a bit out of. Thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for inviting me, Tom.
0: Amy, you're one of the most unique people in the compliance space because of the well-rounded nature of your professional background, and today I want to focus on one part of that, and that's your prior life or prior role in, as an HR professional. And uh, I think that the HR function and the compliance function are uniquely suited, but perhaps one that is underutilized. So maybe we could start with, why do you see HR as such a critical ally for the compliance function?
1: It's such a critical ally, Tom, because both compliance and HR have responsibility for workplace culture, specifically for building a healthy workplace culture and we maintain the infrastructure that create, that makes all that possible, both in HR and in compliance. We do it in different ways, um, but they should be synced up and compatible. So it should fit like hand to glove.
0: Amy, I grew up in a household where my father was a labor and he mm-hmm. dealt with institutional justice and institutional fairness, really from the, um, tribunal being a labor arbitrator, typically where there was a union management contract. So I always saw that component of institutional fairness in a company. Would it be fair to say that in a non-unionized or professional workforce, HR has a role in that now?
1: Yes, absolutely. And And I think they always have, Tom. In my companies when I was in HR, and I was a professional for probably I was first an employment lawyer and then moved into HR for about 11 years in various roles before then becoming a compliance officer. Um, So I came to compliance with a very strong appreciation for the employee life cycle, for how employees uh, are loyal or not loyal, um, doing investigations, employment related, um, and that kind of thing. And I just think there are, are so many commonalities. So for me, it was just a a very continuous stream of learning all the pieces of creating a healthy workplace culture.
0: Could you maybe talk about some of those commonalities that you've observed or you've experienced, Amy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, number one, HR struggles to have a seat at the table, just like compliance often does Tom. Um, second, HR like compliance usually doesn't have all the resources that it needs to, to fulfill its mandate. Right. And then third HR is often also in the fun and challenging position of getting management to do the right thing, which may not always be the expedient thing. So in terms of influence and um, laying the business case and thinking through all of the holistic possibilities of a given situation, I think HR and compliance actually have more in common than they have different.
0: So how do we kind of bridge that gap or at least create some sort of continuum between compliance and HR. It, are there any roadblocks that you that you've experienced or perhaps structural uh, deficiencies that companies take need to take a look at?
1: I think that in terms of structure, it's important to have defined roles and responsibilities. you're going to be tripping over each other, and it's going to be very confusing to management and it's going to feel redundant and inefficient. and that's not good. For two overhead functions to look redundant or efficient or inefficient. So um, boards, managers, CEOs want to appreciate that they're distinct but well, well-oiled machine together. Um, you know, I think that sometimes compliance doesn't do enough due diligence on understanding HR's goals. They should be treated like an internal client and partner, just like any other internal client and business client that we would have do your due diligence. I think compliance officers should be aware of the HR annual life cycle, which very much ties itself to an annual type of process. There are key milestones every year for HR professionals, such as performance reviews and compensation. We shouldn't be launching things during those times. Um, they should be aware of recruitment and how that impacts and where we can help on the recruitment side in a number of programs You know, I had ethical questions, and particularly for senior management roles, Um, we had a role in supporting HR in making a really seamless process that integrated what we knew long term was both in our interests, having a successful, ethical, um, good leader for the company. And so how do we help support that to reverse engineer the best leaders being hired? Things like that, Tom.
0: Amy, uh, in the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs, the Department of Justice really for the first time talked about the CCO and the compliance function needing to be the, the holder or at least the advocate for institutional justice and institutional fairness. As I indicated a little bit earlier, I had seen that previously in a compliance, excuse me, in an HR function. Does that requirement from the Department of Justice Uh, would that lead to any turf battles or even ruffled feathers between uh, compliance and HR? Or is there a way for them to work more collaboratively together that you've you've utilized?
1: Yes, I think it could lead to turf battles. Um, I think that HR considers themselves and the CEOs generally consider them, so consider HR to be the keeper of culture. Um, So I think that will be need to be negotiated in companies that have, Um, established both types of functions, because usually HR is usually reports up to a different board of management member than the compliance officer in companies where the compliance officer doesn't report directly to the CEO, right? So in healthcare, the compliance function often is a direct report, but not not necessarily so in other organizations that are less highly regulated. And so um, like with any stakeholder, I think it's important to get the elephant on the table and talk about it and start to break it down in terms of what's our mandate, what's our mission. I think that HR and compliance, as I shared earlier, have actually a, quite a shared mission, which is to have a healthy workplace culture where everyone knows what's expected, everyone knows where to go where when there's a problem, and third, where um, people feel comfortable speaking up and raising questions. Those three things, are compatible with HR and with compliance. The question is, how do you get there? How's your organization structured? What power and resources do each of the functions have? And where's the overlap? Where could you be tripping over each other and figuring out who's on first before you need it? In all of my organizations that I've worked in, McKesson, Allianz, I've always had a sit down when I've taken on a new executive role. and gotten to know the person, gotten to know their goals and skills so that I can be a good partner and build a good working alliance, Tom, before we get down to brass tacks. And then we get down to brass tacks and we say, okay, this is where I could see there's overlap. This is where I see a gap. What do you think about this? How are things working for you? How can we partner on this? I think this is what I should be doing. I think I own this. What do you think? You'd rather know. I'd I'd rather have someone argue with me up front and say well actually we've been working on that and we kind of think that's ours i'd rather talk about that and hash that out than have what i see in some organizations which is dysfunction on the back end it's worse when you're already in the middle of an investigation they think it's yours you think it's your it's yours that's not good for the company that's not good for your stakeholders or your clients or your employees feeling that they're being that the investigations are being handled promptly thoroughly and fairly right so You want to hack that out ahead of time.
0: So you used a really interesting word, negotiation, and you expanded on that word really throughout your answer there. Uh, Could you uh, talk about some of the soft skills that you've seen used, you've used, or really you uh, try to teach compliance officers to bring to bear in this process where they have an internal negotiation with really an equal partner to try to move forward the goals of both departments?
1: Yeah, I think that as I would advise any of my coaching clients, you, Tom, people don't, um, listen to you and they don't, they will not be influenced by you unless two things exist. The first is they think that you like them. And the second is they think that they can influence you, that you are open to their influence. This is proven time and time again in behavioral psychology and and, and neuroscience. And so what people need to appreciate is that positional authority, having the title, isn't, isn't the way to go. And frankly, it isn't the way of the, of the future workplace. We are in a more and more distributed world where power is distributed. And especially the pandemic has brought that to bear in terms of, to the extent that we could manage by walking around in person or legislate by fiat in companies. That's not going to be the working world as much anymore. It's going to be much more matrixed. And so those influence skills and appreciating that the relationships are actually how work gets done, and it's not just a nice to have, are going to be critical for compliance officers going forward. It always has been, but I think it's going to be even more important.
0: Amy, I've always seen the life cycle of an employment relationship as a great opportunity for a building of culture. And I would start that with pre-employment process. Absolutely. Uh, contacting, or uh, when you have your initial conversation with a potential candidate, screening of the candidate, whether you call that due diligence or not, interviews, both the first interview, a second and third round interview. After there's hiring, there's obviously training. There's an opportunity to talk about culture and compliance. Uh, there's some type of employment review, whether it's ongoing, annual, quarterly, whatever it may be, there may be a discretionary bonus payment at the end of the year that could have an ethics and compliance component. Are, are all of those steps, which I see as part of the employment relationship, do also they lend themselves to either a compliance component or just the, the building of culture?
1: Yeah, um, I agree. And I think that the HR plan is almost like a, a sub-plan in the, it should be, in the compliance mission mandate and structure. You should know when those key elements are happening, comp review, um, onboarding, you should be a part of the onboarding process. The ethics brand should be a part that HR is, um, is your boots on the ground about, if you will. This gen- I've never seen a generation, Tom, that cares more about working for a company that they're proud of and that they feel is doing good work. And so any HR compliance department that isn't thinking about that right now in terms of you know, Gen Z is going to be missing out, especially the pandemic. I think, Tom, has led to increased cynicism for companies that are not reaching out, that are not connecting with their employees, that are not doing the right thing post Black Lives Matter, post Me Too, um, employees are, are really looking and as soon as they can walk with their feet they will. I do a lot of public speaking and I do polling right now it's cuz it's all virtual. And I would say in my in my public speaking about a third of employees say that they will leave as soon as a decent opportunity presents itself because they are so unhappy with their current workplace, how they've been treated whether it's the work from home thing or setting boundaries appropriately on personal and professional time or on ethical issues and feeling supported. So I think that's really critical and you raise a very good point about compliance needs to offer a helping hand to HR in the employee life cycle. And you can map that out. You can't do it all at once, depending on where you're starting, but the code of conduct should be at the forefront of, of employee engagement Another thing, that, you know, with uh, recruitment, it should be part of the recruitment kit, right? On the um, employment application, we always had conflicts of interest embedded in there. Sometimes it took me a year to get the darn thing on there, but I got it on. You know, do you have any conflict that would put you rather know up front, review that before you've hired someone. Boy, is it messy if you've hired somebody afterwards and they're reporting to their aunt or, you know, fill in the blank, Right not good. So you need to have those conversations that you want, need to think ahead about. You reverse engineer, what could the problems be? What's the outcome I want? And okay, what are the processes I need to, and relationships I need to have in place to put this, to make this happen? You can't have a policy for everything, right? That's where the relationships and the safety net comes in.
0: So the um, one of the areas that I've, I've uh, struggled with advising on is around investigations because uh, in a prior life, when I uh, did employment law and helped the HR department inside of a corporation, the hotline tended to report into HR. And as compliance has become more prominent, uh, we've had the compliance uh, take over the hotline and, and based on some laws and some changes in philosophy, how do you advocate a company thinking through the issue of who should the hotline go into, and then after the call comes in, How is it triaged and what's the relationship between compliance and HR going forward?
1: I think you've hit on one of the hottest areas of potential disagreement and not only that, but also with the law department. So I find, and sometimes corporate security. I have, um, I've designed and implemented investigation systems at four companies Um, and one of the most important things to do first in that type of project, you're really leading change management when you do this. Um, And I have a lot of writing that I've done on this and speaking, but you need to get everyone in the room that, that believes they have a stake in investigations and start mapping out uh, a racy chart a roles and responsibilities chart for every type of allegation that could come in. There's usually around 26. If you keep it sane, you agree on the definition and then you agree on four, for employment discrimination. Who's on first? Who's actually going to do the interviews? Who's going to scope that out? And then who's informed versus who has to give consent when you get down to the facts, who's presented with those and who decides discipline, right? So for for employment cases, it would usually be potentially an employment lawyer if you want privilege. Um, It's often not compliance for something like that. And HR is involved, but compliance should be involved in helping HR ensure that it's consistent discipline and that it's proportionate with all of the other misconduct that could go on in the organization. You want to be able to look at the end of the year when I would present my investigations report to the board and to my ethics committee, I would say, okay, you know, here's what happened. Here's the number of calls we got. Here's the number of substantiated cases. And here are the outcomes. And then we would also have transparency, Tom, with our employees around, we, we de-identify it and try to protect people's privacy. But we wanted employees to know that when they call the hotline that, and I prefer to call it the helpline for some other reasons we could talk about, I think it it gets more calls. Um, But people need to know that that you take action. The number one reason in all surveys I've ever done or seen that people do not call a helpline is because they believe nothing will change and they're putting their necks on the line and risking their job for nothing. And we know that unfortunately that does occur in some companies. We see it in the news. You and I have covered a lot of those, right? Um, In some of our podcasts. And so HR and compliance need to work together to make sure that there is organizational justice.
0: The, uh, well, why should we say helpline instead of hotline?
1: More calls. Um, It's friendlier. It doesn't sound scary. And I know people, particularly in certain cultures, where hotline implies to people, if, if you look at some of the research from a user experience standpoint, it implies I know someone did something illegal. I, I'm under a legal obligation to report it now. You and I both know that's not the case. We want people to come to us bef- when there's a smoking gun, but bef- not, not when there's a huge forest fire. So um, we want to get the inquiry that might be nothing. Now, I know some CEOs and some heads of HR that are absolutely frustrated with that approach because um, they think it's a waste of time and it's costly. And I don't mean to say you want to drive everybody to you as kind of um, forum shopping. I think in the worst case, compliance that I've seen, compliance sets up a helpline and it creates forum shopping and arguing between mom and dad. They get a bad answer from HR, so they go to compliance. That's not going to win friends and that's not going to... Uh, get you good support or outcomes so you don't want that but you do want to get conflict of interest inquiries when people genuinely aren't sure you want to get um potential fraud when someone sees something that they're not sure about and they don't want to personally get involved but they want to hand it off to someone who's skilled at doing forensic investigations that kind of thing does that make sense
0: it does Let me pick up on another point you raised a little bit earlier. You talked about the social justice movement around Black Lives Matter, certainly diversity and inclusion, uh, and you previously talked about uh, Gen Z. I'd like to also include millennials as part of this question. But what do you see as the role of compliance as either leading that discussion, perhaps jointly uh, working on that discussion with HR, or the role of, of compliance in matters that really came up literally last summer are going to be with us for a long time going forward.
1: Yeah, it is back to the culture question. Um, It is still, I believe, HR's primary responsibility and, and should be to handle employment law related disputes, because that is what HR is trained in with employment lawyer support in terms of literally discrimination, harassment, based on race, sex, gender, disabilities, and other protected classes. Um, however, compliance can offer to promote the messaging, to be a part of the communication strategy. They should offer to be partnered boots on the ground so that they hear or see something they are trained to know what the HR protocols are. And they should help ensure that there's fairness around the response to that.
0: Amy, where do you see the role or the relationship perhaps is a better word of HR compliance uh, into 2025 or even beyond?
1: Yeah, great question. I've been thinking about trends and what we can expect. I, I think there are a few trends, Tom. Um, One which I would share is a business trend because I think it's very important for compliance officers and any, any leaders to, to think like a business person first. And that's a real shift that has to happen, but it has to happen if, once you get into the C-suite and that's that you're seen as a business partner first before you're viewed as your functional area. And we're really seeing the end of competitive advantage in companies, meaning um, you know I build something first, it's great, and I get to sit on that market and just monetize it for 20 to 30 years. the the VUCA volatility and rapid change environment that we are in, mainly driven by technology, but also driven by a global competitive economy, has led to what my uh, Marshall Goldsmith colleague, Rita McGrath, um, who's a brilliant strategic thinker, you may know her from Columbia, has done a lot of work in this area. And she talks about how we've moved now in companies to an era of um, exploiting temporary advantage, that we have the spotlight on a particular product or a leverage point temporarily, and we need to leverage that and then and then move on, because the ability to copy and um, iterate is so fast. And I think that, that compliance officers need to be aware of that, because the implications are that product development um, and companies moving fast means we need to keep up pace with the risk profile with where we spend our resources and really being influential and being at the table so that we know what our business strategies are and where we should be investing scarce resources. Um, The second thing I would say is based on that as well, we need to really look at cutting out bureaucracy. We need to look at our policies, look at our procedures and move more and more as as possible towards a self-service. I've seen some great apps that are coming out around coaching in the moment, around conflicts of interest, there are certain things that can be decision trees that can be as easy as some of the other meditation or other apps that we may have on our phones. Um, the Having a chat bot for basic ethics concerns. Of course, there will always need to be human intervention for individual case, but there is some um, commoditization of compliance that we should be, you know, considering. Um, and then the third is this role that you've so wisely pointed out, Tom, around the supporting role of culture. Um, in corporations. I think that, as you've pointed out, compliance is going to be called upon more and more publicly to have a role in um, culture and in driving that. I just did a guest lecture at Stanford on the ethics of financial engineering, for example, and that was a very embedded course around multidisciplinary around engineering, ethics, um, and what we would perhaps call some HR principles. And It is our role to make sure that the rules that are put in place are fair and that they're enforced consistently and that they're communicated well. So I see those as the trends going forward.
0: Amy, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself or perhaps any of the services that uh, you bring as a consultant. Where could they go look?
1: Thank you. Well, as you know, my goal is to accelerate the success of compliance and legal professionals. I'm highly dedicated to this. So you can visit me at my website, which is barnardbond.com, b-a-r-n-a-r-d-b-a-h-n.com, and I've also created a Promotability Index, which is a free self-assessment tool that's been really popular. And you can get that by texting "Promote Me," all one word, to two two four four four, and that'll give you a free eighty-two question assessment that also gives you a lot of insight into where you might want to do your self-development plan.
0: Amy, uh, as always, it's been a great pleasure and a lot of fun visiting with you. And I wanted to thank you again for taking the time to visit with me today.
1: Thanks for inviting me, Tom.
0: This is Tom Fox. Thanks for listening to this episode of the compliance handbook. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe and tune in next week. Until then, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Thanks again, and I look forward to visiting with you again.